Hi there and welcome. You're listening to Dear Anxiety, the show about mental health and how we deal with it. I'm Rini Jane and you might be asking yourself, where's Ed? Bring back Ed. Well, we're taking a week off and not recording a new episode this week, but neither of us wanted to leave you empty handed. So we decided to share with you this interview I did with Dr. Laura Markham. Oh, she is amazing. This was an interview that was part of the Resilient Child Summit. Dr. Markham discusses child anxiety and how parents can help lead their kids through challenging emotions while also dealing with their own challenging emotions. I promise you it's worth your time, even if Ed isn't here to make jokes throughout. And I'll point out quickly, if you like this interview, it's just one of 20 interviews available as part of the Resilient Child Summit. If you're interested in hearing the rest, just visit resilientchildsummit.com and you'll find out information about how you can access the rest of the interviews. Now, without further ado, here's Dr. Markham, and please join us again next week when both Ed and I will be back with an all-new episode of Dear Anxiety. Thanks, guys. This is Rini Jane, Chief Storyteller at GoZen, bringing you the Resilient Child Summit. I have already told our guest today that I am going to try very hard not to cry, even when I'm introducing her, (laughs) because I'm so incredibly moved by her work in the world. So today we have Dr. Laura Markham with us. She's trained as a clinical psychologist. She earned her PhD from Columbia University, but she's a mom. So she translates proven science into practical, and I'm talking practical, solutions. Dr. Markham even has scripts on her website. It's one of my favorite things, right? So, you know, after reading all the science, it's kind of like, can you just tell me what to say? Well, she tells you what to say. She's the author of the books, Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids, one of my favorite books ever, How to Stop Yelling and Start Connecting. We're going to talk about that during this interview. And Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. I need that book still with my brother. (laughs) She's the founding editor of ahaparenting.com. I literally have consumed, I think, every single word on that website. I would implore you to do the same. It's absolutely Absolutely amazing. Dr. Laura serves as a parenting expert for many websites. She's on TV, she's on radio, she's in the newspaper, but you will find her work practical, down to earth, and you'll just be able to relate and you're going to see during this interview. So I am super, super honored and very excited to have you here with us, Dr. Markham. Welcome. Thank you, Rini. You're so welcome. Okay. I want to talk connection. I want to talk connection between parent and child. I feel like I know it's a word that you use often. I feel like it's also become a buzzword recently, you know, for parenting educators and parents in circles where they're learning to be more mindful with their children. And I'd really like to unpack this word, right? So you write connection is a key to happy parenting. Can you tell us what connection is? And can you also tell us how it differs from coddling? (laughs) (laughs) Connection is what happens between two people when we meet in some way. 
And so it's that, that place where magic can happen. Mm-hmm. And often it doesn't because we're not really connecting. Often we're either doing this, banging on somebody, or we're glancing by because we're just so busy trying to get kids through the day, right? And it happens with our partners as well. You know, you ask what's different than coddling. I'm not sure how you define coddling, but I define coddling as um, nurturing that that keeps someone from standing on their own two feet. Mm. And so I'm a big fan of nurturing. Coddling is when we say, oh, no, no, don't do that. I can do it for you when the child actually wants to do it themselves. And sometimes that's because we want to feel like the parent who can do everything. And sometimes it's because we don't want to mess, you know, Um, right? And certainly sometimes the child is saying, I can't, I can't. And we say, don't worry, I'll do it for you. And sometimes that's not coddling. Sometimes it's an appropriate form of nurture to say, you know what, I think you can, but it's okay. I can do it for you this time, right? So coddling is a whole topic in itself that we could talk about, Mm. but I don't think it has anything to do with connection. When you connect with your partner, you're not necessarily coddling. It has nothing to do with with that, right? When you connect with your child, here's what happens. You say, I'm here and I am aware of you and I'm taking you in and your bids for connection will be responded to. So John Gottman is, I think, the foremost researcher on families in the United States. He's in Seattle. And most people know him as a couples therapist and researcher, and he is. But he's defined intimacy as what happens when one person reaches out for connection. He calls it a bid, as in a, a bid for attention or I think you could also call it an overture. I don't know if I got that word from him or I came up with it, but it's like the opening movement in a symphony, the overture. And so one person makes that overture to the next person and the other person can respond. And you can imagine in a marriage that when one person does that and the response is loving, it strengthens the trust between those two people. And the next bid might be more vulnerable, more in need of support because they trust that that other person will respond. But when you have a parent and child, what happens? We think we're not supposed to coddle. So the child reaches out vulnerably and we're like, you can do that yourself. And what happens to the trust level? Broken, non-existent. We have parents in the audience who are listening and they truly want to support their child. They want to be the guide for their children. They want to be there for them. They want to connect with them. But sometimes they're unsure about that line, right? Am I actually now doing too much for my child and not enabling their growth, right? So maybe I should ignore them in order to have them, as you said, stand on their own two feet and realize they have to do something on their own. So let's make, let's create an example, right? So we have a child that has to study for tests and perhaps 
you know, this causes a lot of anxiety in their life because am I going to do well? And what if I don't do well? And what if I fail? And so they have a hard time sitting down to actually focus and do some studying. And we have parents that say, okay, well, I want to support you. And I understand you're looking to connect with me because the child is saying, mom, help me, right? Or mom, I don't want to do this. So in a situation like that, how do we connect with our child and say, hey, I'm here for you, but not then take over, right? And coddle, let's say. So one of the things that happens for children, especially anxious children, is that they can borrow what we might call ego strength from their parent. They are, you know, let's say the eight-year-old is too anxious to, to sit down and actually study those spelling words. But if the parent will sit down with the eight-year-old and will test the eight-year-old on the spelling words, then somehow they can stay calmer, right? And it's because of the presence of the parent. When children feel connected, they feel safer. And when they don't feel connected, they don't feel safe, they act out. You know, it makes sense that their anxiety level rises. So you said how to not take over. Mm -hmm. Well, what you would do is you would notice, observe before you jump in what's going on with your child. And the eight-year-old is saying, what's the eight-year-old saying in this, in our example? What does the eight-year-old say to you? The eight-year-old is saying, I just can't do this and I don't want to do this. And it's, it's too hard. Yeah. Yeah. So our goal is not to study this words for the eight-year-old. We can't do that in any case. But our goal is to give them the foundation they need. So there are certain basic things that kids need. We, they need to feel connected to us, right? So they can't be doing this after they've had a fight with us, for instance, or we've been irritated and raising our voice at them. So that's one thing. Another thing is they need routines. So sitting down and studying every day when you come home from school is a non-negotiable thing. We have ways to make it palatable. You always get your snack, right? Mom or dad is always in the room, they're not going off to a room by themselves or they would have to hold it together by themselves and feel isolated. But a routine really helps diminish their anxiety level. So that'd be another thing you want to do. You also want to give them support before they even get into the studying. So an example would be laughter. Laughter changes the body chemistry, lowers the stress hormones. So if you can regularly get your eight-year-old or even your 12-year-old laughing, before it's a lot easier with you know three year olds you pick them up and toss them around and it's done. But an eight year old you can usually come up with games, physical games that will get them laughing. And even twelve year olds you can usually find ways that are pretty guaranteed to get your twelve year old to laugh. So if you can get some laughing going every single day when they get home or on your way home or whatever before they sit down to study, you'll find that they have more inner resources. To focus. And then every kid's different, but you'll observe your kid and maybe your kid really needs a chance to offload everything that happened in school. And often kids will be so negative. The parent says, why would you let them talk about that? They'll just work themselves into a negative state. But the truth is, once they get a chance to, to vent, they do feel better. So you don't have to get really involved in it. You just say, wow, hmm, oh, no wonder you got upset about that. Wow. Oh gosh, that must have hurt your feelings. You know, you don't have to say a lot. You don't have to jump in to solve anything. You listen. And for most kids, that listening time with a parent really helps make them ready to sit down and focus. Then when they're saying, you say, well, look at the time, hon, 4.30, it is time to get your homework to your homework. And your kid says, 
Oh, it's too hard. I have spelling words again. I always fail those tests. I hate this. There's no way. I can't do it. I can't learn spelling. You know, you say it is really frustrating when you feel like you can't learn them. It is hard. This Your brain has to work super hard to do this, harder than a lot of kids. It's true. But you know what? I know you can do it because on your spelling test last week, you got five words right. Yeah, but there were 10 words on the test. I know. I know, but you got five of them right. That's something to build on. Next time, maybe you'll get six. So you're giving them a success to build on and your belief in them. But you're also holding the non-negotiable line that actually you do need to take your spelling test, right? And then you say, so what can we do to make this easier? What would be a fun way to learn them? And now I'm going to draw on a reference that the parent may not ha- might not have, but it's a great reference if you're trying to learn spelling words, for instance, um, the movie Spelling Bee, I think it's called Spelling Bee, where the girl learns to jump, she jumps rope. And as she jumps rope, she learns the spelling words. And it's because physical activity cements the word, that the spelling in the brain. So you can work out with your child something fun they can do while you're testing them on the words, right? And jumping rope is an example of that. But it could be math. It could be anything. You can come up with a way to make it more fun. And here's the thing. Any big thing that anybody did, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, anything, you can break it down to small pieces. He had to paint the toe sometime before he painted God, right? And so whatever your child has to do, they can learn one word to start. There can be one math problem. And usually what makes kids more anxious is the big thing of homework. So again, cut it into manageable size chunks. Just chunk it. So you might say to your child, whatever it is that they're having a hard time with, you know, how about we just do that one math problem to start? I'm right here. You don't do it for them. You're sitting next to them or across from them while they're working on it. And you're, you're basically the, you're, I was going to say the anxiety coach, but it's really more like the holding environment. They're allowed to get upset. They're allowed to have whatever happens happen. And you're the one who's big enough, whose emotional generosity is big enough to contain that so that your child can just go through it, move through it and get to the other side. I love that. I'm going to bring up some barriers that I feel like parents might have to some of the suggestions that you've brought up, just so that we can help them implement these ideas. So one thing is, is that some of the ideas that you've suggested require creative juice, right? They require me to have not just the creativity to come up with them, but the energy to come up with them. And I might be in a place where now I've dealt with my child telling me they don't want to do X, Y, and Z because they're feeling worried about it for the 368th day in a row. And I'm just at the, oh my goodness, you know, I'm feeling like this. My shoulders are slumped over as a parent. I'm trying my hardest. I'm tired too. I've worked all day too. Please don't come home and tell me that, you know, so how are we helping these parents get into the right space where they can help their kids? Because I feel like it's a vicious cycle going on. It is. So I believe that our number one parenting responsibility is ourselves. You can only give what you have inside. I mentioned emotional generosity. When I say that, parents often say, oh, 
that's what I'm supposed to be doing, emotional generosity. Where do you expect me to get that? <laughs> the answer is easy if you're depleted. You know, none of us can give something we don't have inside. So I would say your child did not ask to be born. Your child did not ask to be born with anxiety because it is most likely mostly innate. It's not something you created through your parenting. It's just who your child is, right? And your child is going through the 348th day of facing those words and feeling like there must be dumb and there must be something wrong with them. And so while it's very natural from our perspective to get angry at the child and frustrated and like, you know, just wish they would just pull it together, from the child's perspective, they're just desperate for mom or dad to do something different that will help them this time. I want to talk about that desperation because the desperation in a child can manifest in many different ways, as you know. Sometimes it's a tantrum. And there's lots of parents who get good at managing the tantrum, but sometimes it's anger. Can we talk about that? Because when our child, what's sitting on top of their anxious feeling, their worried feeling, the sadness, the desperation is anger, that can very quickly trigger our own anger. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, do anxious kids get angry? What happens when a child is getting angry? I mean, I know there's probably no one answer, but I know that there are a lot of people in our community dealing with kids who are angry. So anger comes from threat, right? It's the body's, you know what happens when we're under threat, fight, flight, or freeze. We're mammals. We have a very limited repertoire. So freeze would mean we go numb or we get distant. There are probably some moms and dads watching this who do that. They, they freed and they get sort of cold and distant and they, you know, they cut off from their child. That's one response to threat. Another is, is flight. You know, maybe you go get on your phone, right? And remember with your child, it's the same thing. He begs for screen time, right? Or they want to numb themselves out with sweets. So that's the same, same repertoire. And then there's fight. And fight is when we're under threat. Now, some people say, no, for me, fight is when somebody unjustly does something. Yes, but that's a threat to you. Or if you feel out of control, like you're being pushed around, then your response might be fight because that's a threat to you, right? So when we're frightened, we, one of the things we do is we go into fight mode. Mm-hmm. So what's anxiety? Anxiety is fear. Anxiety is just fear. It's a form of fear. So if we're an, a person who tends to be anxious, what we're really saying is that the alarm systems, the nervous system's alarm mechanism is hardwired to be very vigilant. So this is a kid whose alarm system is like this. And sometimes those kids are afraid of everything. Sometimes it looks different. Sometimes they might not look hypervigilant, but they're tend toward anger, right? Mm-hmm. Or they tend to be fidgety, or they might even be diagnosed as ADHD because they're so, you know, it comes out in an external physical way, that anxiety, right? But I guess you're saying how should a parent respond when a child uh, blows up? It could easily be anxiety that's causing the child to blow up. But regardless of the reason, it doesn't really matter Mm. what the reason is. When another person gets angry, someone we love, 
And, and we're, I mean, if you're in danger, if it's a mugger, that's a whole different story. We're not going there. We're talking about what happens when your child gets angry. Remember, people raise their voices to get hurt. Right. Because now they're not just saying, I don't want to take the test. I don't feel like doing the spelling. I don't feel like doing... Now they're like, forget it. You're the meanest mom ever. How could you do this to me? And it's very difficult to put the shield on and not take it personally or not have the immediate trigger of, oh my goodness, I've raised a disrespectful child. I've give, I'm giving every t- everything to them and look at how they're treating me. So notice what just happened in our mind. Mm-hmm. We're, we're under threat of, of having raised, totally failed as parents. Okay, from this child, and we can talk in a moment about what's going on with the child, but what's happened to the parent is the parent has moved from, you know, the child yelling to saying, wow, my child is a terrible human being and I'm a complete failure as a parent. That's yeah. more than a mugger, frankly. That's like the worst thing that could that you could tell me. You know, it's just, it's terrible. So in fact, if we can notice our tendency to slide down that slope so quickly, you know, don't go over the edge. Stop drop and breathe. That's the first thing. Stop, drop your agenda, take a deep breath. Then you need a little mantra to to talk yourself off the edge. And one really good one is don't take it personally. In general, you changed only one thing in your life and it was to do this, to stop, drop and breathe, and then remind yourself not to take it personally. And you use that in every interaction with another human being. Your entire life would get so much better and you would find that you uh, had evolved to a whole new level. Really, that one thing. Don't take it personally. Because in fact, it's never about you. Everyone in the world... I was just going to say it because I know I hear a parent's voice in my ear right now saying, but sometimes they are personally attacking me, Dr. Markham. They're they're attacking me. But it's not about you. It's about your child's dysregulation, their tangled up Mm. feelings, their inability, their their fear that there's something wrong with them and that they have failed you. Why are they attacking you? Because you're asking them to do something they perceive as impossible. Mm. They think they're not good enough. And every time you ask your your 12-year-old, let's say, to sit down and study, your 12-year-old feels like, I am really a failure. My, what is my life going to look like? I can't even do the, the, you know, the other kids seem to know what they're doing in class and I can't even follow what's going on. I can't do this homework. I can never please her. No matter what I do, it's not good enough. And what does the child do? The child attacks you. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's not about you. It's about the child's feeling of not being good enough and their own fear. And then we, we meet it with our fear and all of a sudden we're the worst parent in the world and we have to crack down and get that kid to, you know, behave and be respectful. And meanwhile, we've completely missed the dynamic of what's going on, which is that our child is is feeling this abyss of desperation that they don't know how to articulate and we don't know how to recognize. Mm. How do we come, let's say we stop, drop and breathe, right? We use the mantra, don't take it personally. Then in that situation, how do we come back to connection? Because the child is yelling at you at this moment, right? So right. you to connect with someone who's yelling at you. Right. So your child is sitting at the table where they're supposed to be doing their homework, but they don't want to put their phone away, let's say, and they've got it in front of them and they're not doing their homework. I would sit down next to them, take a deep breath. Because if you're in, an, in um, an angry place, your child will sense that. So you're, mm-hmm. you might even walk away for a few minutes. 
if it's a 12 year old, you can do that. They're just going to look at their phone while you're gone. It doesn't really matter. Um, if it's a six year old, they're going to chase you and hit you, but you know, a 12 year old is just going to sit there. So you walk away for a few minutes, you shake out your hands, you breathe, you might go into the bathroom and run water on your hands. There are many mindfulness practices that only take two minutes but they're most effective if you practice them on a regular basis. But really just noticing your body. I have all this tightness in my chest. I'm afraid. You know, just notice. And don't get into a whole storyline of, oh, I'm afraid she'll, she'll never graduate from high school. She'll never make it to college. I'm afraid, you know, whatever. I, my parents were right. I was a bad mother. You know, whatever. Don't go into the storyline. That's not helpful. Stay with your body. Your body never lies. Your body remembers everything that's ever happened. It is the repository of all of your emotions in your unconscious. You stay with the body, you breathe. And then you say, again, something to talk yourself down, like, don't take it personally. She's acting like a 12-year-old because she is a 12-year-old. And you go back to your child and you sit down and you smile ruefully at your child. You might put out your hand and touch her on the arm because she's looking at her phone and studiously not looking at you, you know. And you say, sweetheart, you were just yelling at me. You must have been so upset to yell at me like that. Let's work this out. Now, sometimes you might say, what's going on? Right? Or you might say, tell me more about that. Or you might say, it seems like you're so upset about this, but you're basically opening the door. And then you're, here's what's going to happen next. Your 12 year old is going to raise her voice at you again. Not as much as the first time because you're listening now, but still you've just torn a scab off by doing this. So you have to be prepared to get yelled at yet again and talk yourself off the cliff yet again. Don't get up from your chair, stay there. Just keep breathing and you're and nodding and your child's going to say, but mom, you don't understand. You never understand. And I've been telling you this and you're never listening to me and I can't. And they're going to unload and you're going to say, oh my goodness, I really wasn't listening, was I? You've been trying to tell me this and you've been so upset about it. I'm here. I'm listening. We can figure this out. And you can give your kid a hug. And they're not going to yell at you now. They're going to be like, well, I guess this is the cavalry to the rescue, but what's she really going to do to help me? I'm not sure she can help me, but at least I'm listening, the child. That takes incredible, not just strength. I think it takes incredible practice. I think you're right. I think we are not practiced at these situations, right? They give you training for every other major job in the world, but when it comes to parenting, no one's put me in a ring because I think not only the words, but literally the sensory experience of withstanding being yelled at is something nobody practices, right? Because as you said, it sounds off the threat alarm in my brain when someone's screaming at me. So immediately I'm at, I'm on high alert, looking around, you know, who do I have to attack back? And I think it takes sensory training almost to be able to do what you're saying. So how do we train for it? I mean, can we literally practice? Have your own trainer already built in. It's your 12 year old (laughs) or your eight year old. So you're not going to do it perfectly the first time. So if you're a parent watching this, you're saying, I can 
do this. I can't imagine doing this. And you'll try it and you'll be amazed. You'll do okay. But what will happen is the first time you do this, it'll take you longer to calm down. And then when your kid keeps yelling at you again, you'll start going, but, but, you know, and, and you'll just have to say to yourself, it's okay. I can do this. I can, you know, talk yourself off the cliff again and again. And you might have to get up and leave and then come back, you know, but you're getting trained. You're actually getting trained. And here's the amazing thing. It's, I've seen this happen with my own kids and I've heard it from other people that when you do this with your child for the first time, it gets better after that because the child feels heard and knows that you will come through and you are determined to keep that connection. You're not just going to pull rank and scream at them and walk away. And so um, I remember when my daughter was 11 and we had a discussion where this was going on. And she came to me later and she, first of all, she burst into tears and she sobbed on my shoulder. But then later she came and she thanked me for not losing my temper and for And I think you will see things like that begin to happen with your own child because they can't always control themselves, but they know they're being outrageous and they just wish somebody would help them. And you're helping them instead of, you know, instead of fighting, you're rising to a higher level where you're actually acting like the parent. What parents should act like. And what happens in the times when we do lose it, you know, and then on top of losing it, we just have this tremendous amount of guilt. Oh my goodness because I can see that my child is having a hard time. And now I've basically lost my cool, you know, and I feel like I failed in trying not to do it. So I know that we have to be compassionate with ourselves, but how do we recover from that? And do you recommend going to the child and saying, sorry? I I absolutely do. If you want your child to think that it's normal and okay to explode at somebody, then don't go apologize, you know? But if you want them to think that actually... There are better ways to handle it. And everybody is human and everybody makes mistakes, but we're all working on it. Then you would apologize. So yes, I do recommend that you go to the kid. But I I just want to say to the parent, everybody has a hard time with this. Everybody makes mistakes. We're all just, uh, we're really, what we're doing is rewiring our brains. So every time you want to clobber your kid or at least scream at them and you don't, and you're able to stop, drop, and breathe and rechannel that into something constructive. Every time you're able to do that, you're actually rewiring your brain. And over time, it gets a lot easier. So that's, it seems impossible right now, but over time, it gets easier. So that's the first thing to remember. The second is that guilt is there for a reason. There's a message. Every single emotion you ever have has a message in it. The message of guilt is you're out of integrity. Hmm. That's what it says. You know, it's like we want our kids to be integrity. We don't want them to do the things that they know they shouldn't, like sneak the cookie out of the cookie jar or cheat on the test at school or be disrespectful. Well, we're out of integrity when we, you know, when we don't rise above, when we, in fact, yell at our child in this kind of an instance. So the guilt is there to tell us that, to give us the message. So what you do is you listen to the guilt and then you say, you know what? Everybody makes mistakes. I get the message. I was out of integrity. I'm going to go correct that. And I'm going to, what's more, come up with a way that I can give myself more support. Beating up on yourself does not make you a better parent. Giving yourself more support might make you a better parent, right? It's like yelling at your kid better at their homework. Giving them more support to stay less anxious and to be able to focus, that is what will help them, right? 
I know I just want to stay on the yelling for a minute because I know it's in the title of one of your books. Um, sometimes we are told by parents that when they yell, although they have all the repercussions of feeling guilty, they know it's not right, they don't want to do it, but they feel a sense of relief, almost that all of the stuff that's pent up inside of it comes out. And it's almost, I, and I'm just going to say it for them, addictive, right? There's an addictive quality. Absolutely addictive. But you know what? I, I would say here's what actually is happening. I use a metaphor of the emotional backpack. You go through your day and the things that you can't deal with emotionally get stuck in the backpack, right? Because here's the thing with emotions. It's the magic thing nobody teaches you when you're growing up. If emotions have a message, you let yourself feel it mm-hmm. and it evaporates. It goes away. If you're sad, eventually... If you allow yourself to feel your grief, the grief will diminish dramatically. It doesn't mean you will ever get over a death of someone you love, but it does mean it won't immobilize you. You'll be able to go on with your life and think lovingly and happily of that person in the good times you shared, right? Why does that happen? Because you let yourself experience the grief. When you have what's called complicated or unresolved grief, it, which psychologists deal with, right? It's because you can't let yourself go near that grieving. And the big thing that happens in the psychologist's office is you begin to sob and work through that grief. And then you, it's, you're on the path to healing, right? So all day long, you have minor versions of that. You know, you, you, your boss has an angry email waiting for you when you get to the office or a phone call. <laughs> or, you know, you go into the meeting and somebody blindsides you in the meeting And you're like, oh my God, how did this happen? And I didn't know about it. Um, But you have to act like a professional, right? Or, you know, let's say you're at home with your kids and your your little one has been, you know, throwing up or had an ear infection all night and you had no sleep. And now you've got the three-year-old who pees on the floor or, you know, it doesn't matter whether- For you at my house last night. (laughs) You, you- Yeah, no matter whether you're at home, you know, working or in an office working, you will find that all day long things will happen that are a lot for you to deal with and that you're running from one thing to another and it's very hard to process it. So what happens to those things? Well, they, they start to bubble up to get healed. There, there's really no backpack. It's the body, right? So they're in there and they're, they're waiting to come out. And so what do you, you feel that tension and meanwhile, here's your kid saying, I can't do this homework. I hate you. You're the worst mother. And what mm-hmm. do you do? You scream at them. But if you didn't have that full backpack of stuff to empty out, right, this wouldn't be happening. But here's the thing that's interesting. I used to think it was that, that, was, the, that was the model, what I've just described. Yeah. But I came to the discovery that actually you're not emptying the backpack when you do that. What you're doing is you're going into fight mode. Fight mode mobilizes mm. the adrenaline and the body says, oops, can't deal with that backpack right now. We've got a fight on our hands. And it pushes everything back down in the backpack. So it's not bubbling up to get healed. So you don't feel the anxiety. But after you've yelled at your kid, you still have that same full backpack, actually. It's just not bubbling out. So it doesn't even help you empty the backpack. All it does when you go into fight mode is it gives you a storm of adrenaline, cortisol and other stress hormones so that you're in, in, and you feel good because it shuts down every pain in your body so you can mobilize for the occasion to survive, right? That's how fight mode works. This is why your kid might have been fine at school all day, come home with a full backpack, and then just completely needles at his brother and sister because he would rather fight with them than feel all that stuff in the backpack. 
Yes. Or just melts down like at the drop of anything, right? Actually more positive because then he's actually expressing what's in the backpack. That's mm. because the backpack is an mm. anger. The backpack is all the stuff under the anger, the the, right. the tears and the fears, right? Right. Right. Powerless and, and not good enough and scared and sad. All that stuff, the more vulnerable stuff is what's in the backpack. And the the anger is just what we mobilize to keep it under, right? So if your child comes home and has a meltdown, that's actually better. And if they come home and they laugh, I mentioned laughing, that's better because it, it siphons off the top layer of anxiety, of fear in the backpack. So that's helpful too. But you said it's addictive. The reason it's addictive, and spanking is addictive too for the exact same reason. The reason spanking, hitting someone, um, and yelling are addictive is that they mobilize the fight and they squash the stuff down in the backpack. So they aren't actually venting what's in there. They're, they're, it's like fight, flight, or freeze. It's like eating a chocolate cake. You know, It pushes the stuff down and then we feel better but it doesn't actually resolve anything. And that's why it's addictive. You have to. And that's why it's addictive. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing it. I think you have such a beautiful way of communicating to parents and also to children. And this is just is what is coming up for me is like my eight-year-old self wanting to ask you a question, Dr. Markham, Great. which is this. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like the things that I'm going through nobody else is going through and nobody understands and I'm really different and I just want to fit in. Can you help me? That is a terrible feeling to feel so alone that you, that you don't have anybody like you to, to be with and that you don't feel like people see you and understand who you are and, and value that, love that. That is really hard. So I would say, even though you feel really alone, there are other people who feel like you do. There are other people who feel like they aren't seen and they're different. In fact, I think most people feel that way secretly. I know that sounds crazy. Most people look okay on the outside. But really inside, many, many, many people feel like they don't feel seen, they don't feel understood, and they don't feel like they're like they're a value and connected. Really? Because there's all these kids at school and they just seem like they have everything together. Like they're doing good in school and they have lots of friends and they're playing sports and I just feel like a misfit, you know, when I see them sometimes. I can't believe that they go through stuff too. You know, if you could read those kids' journals you would see that they worry about things too. And everybody, every single person in the world has times in their lives when they, has some time in their life when they feel this way. And, you know, I felt a lot of what you're describing, I felt when I was eight. Really? And, and I... I have often thought, like, what could I have told myself when I was eight that would have made a difference? And I think it's that it's okay to be who you are. That's the only person you can be. It's good enough. It's good enough. And you can show people who you really are. And they'll appreciate that because it gives them permission to be who they are, too. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. So now um, we are coming up, you know, close to the end of our time together. And I could literally probably talk to you for days <laughs> um, about so many different things, Dr. Markham. I know that you have a lot of tools, but if you are going to leave us with a tool or you know, more than a tool, what would that be? So there's a tool for the parent and then there's a tool for with your child. So very quickly, I talk about preventive maintenance a lot with a set of five tools. And they're listed on my website. If you go and put preventive maintenance into the search engine, you'll find blog posts and other articles that will talk you through how to do these things. We've talked about some of them. We've talked about the importance of routines. We've talked about empathy and how that's how children are willing to accept our limits. Um, we've talked about uh, laughter, laughter and roughhousing that is transformative for the emotions. We, we didn't really talk much about meltdowns, but welcoming your child's emotions and allowing them to have their, to, allowing them to cry uh, what I call scheduled meltdowns. Um, and, uh, oh, and the fifth one would be special time, one-on-one -on -one connection time between you and each kid separately, uh, especially if you have any sibling issues. Um, really helps. It's, it's like making your love visceral, putting it into action. So all of those things are outlined on the website um, and in my book, Peaceful Parent, Happy Kids. But the tool I really want to leave you with is about self-regulation. So... I was in therapy um, as a younger, a young adult, and I have read thousands and thousands of parenting books and tens of thousands of parenting articles and psychology books, thousands of psychology books. I would say that none of that has had as much impact on who I am and my ability to parent and be, you know, just to be who I am in relationship with anyone as meditation. And there are many kinds of meditation. Meditation is really, really, really hard. If you've never done it, it's very hard to do. There are easy ways to begin. There are many guided meditations online. Um, I think guided meditation is a great way to begin because it's so hard to sit down and be with yourself. But guided meditation gets you in the habit of sitting. And eventually you can graduate to, uh, to just being with yourself and not not in a guided meditation. But I, I would say to parents, if you want to change one thing, it would be to begin a practice. And if you have children, you have no time. I, I totally get that. So it can be a two-minute practice if that's where you start. But start it, you know, before you go to bed at night, whatever. But start a practice of meditation that you will gradually then find that it sustains you to such a degree that you'll increase the time, you'll do it more and more, and you will see it change your life. It will rewire your brain to make all of the kinds of things we've talked about today possible. Wow, that's amazing. So I am a long-time meditator, and since I've had my kids, they're three and four, I have had to find all of these <laughs> very creative ways to do my meditation. So sometimes I meditate while I'm brushing my teeth. Sometimes I'm in the shower. Oftentimes I'm walking. So I will do walking meditations. But I wholeheartedly agree that when I find myself getting away from that practice, I can physically feel the shift inside of me. 
and I return to it because it's so incredibly grounding. Now, I know it's funny. I feel like we've come to a time in our society where meditation and mindfulness meditation in particular are everywhere. And so you're getting to, you know, you get the contrarian that's like, oh my goodness, meditation, like you're talking about meditation again. So before we close this out, can you tell us what meditation means to you? You know, we talked about the emotional backpack, right? So when you just sit with yourself, all of that stuff will come up, which is why meditators, when they begin meditating, they'll sometimes find themselves crying and they don't even know why, right? Um, or you, you'll just be swamped with some feeling. But that's the thing about emotion. It swamps you. You feel it. You allow the discomfort. You even welcome the emotion and say, here I am. What are you here to tell me? And it vanishes. It begins to dissipate. So uh, body scans, I did body scans. I did Vipassana meditation when I first started. So for the first 10 years of my meditation in my 20s, really all I did was body scans. And it's a way that you clean out the unconscious. You just go through and you clean out the backpack. You clean out the unconscious. You empty the garbage, you know. And it, um, it allows you to not be reacting, getting, it, it just, it reduces the number of times you get triggered dramatically when you do that. So that's one thing meditation means to me. But I'll say another thing that meditation means to me. It means that you can go beyond your scared self, your, your um, small self, your uh, ego, psychologists would say. Mm. Instead of letting your ego drive things, and I'm not somebody who beats up an ego and says, oh, you have to get rid of your ego. Absolutely not. That's part of who we are. It's sort of like my body. My body's great for some things, but when it gets angry, I'm not going to let it make the decision to go ahead and punch somebody, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so we appreciate our bodies. We appreciate our emotions. But our emotions, like that fear before the test, that may not be what we want to act on feel the fear and do it anyway, right? So all of our, our body, our emotions, our mental stuff, which is all the ego stuff, you know, it thinks we have to jockey for position. There's no need to jockey for position. There's more than enough for everybody. We are good enough the way we are, right? And how do we get to that? By going to another, I think, a higher level, the heart. Mm. When we move up to the level of the heart, we're able to make wiser decisions. So I think what meditation does is it allows us to love. Uh, the Buddha said, and I'm not a Buddhist, but the Buddha said that meditation creates a matri, which is unconditional regard. Well, I don't know if he called it regard, but unconditional um, acceptance of the self, right? So if we're creating unconditional acceptance of ourselves, that's unconditional love. And once we do that, we're at the level of the heart. And we're much more able to respond to other people from that level and not get tripped up by the anger in the body or the fear in the emotions or the, the need to somehow win that might be coming from our mind. I love that. You are a wonderful gift to this world. You truly are a wisdom teacher. Um, you walk the talk, talk the walk. I get all of those sayings mixed up because my parents are immigrants, I say, but but you're just a beautiful light in this world. And we're really so honored that you are able to share this generous time with us, Dr. Markham. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. I'm grateful that I was able to be here with you today.